This is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. And today we're talking about Ori and the Will of the Wisps, uh, developed by Moon Studios and published by Xbox Game Studios for Windows, Xbox One, and the Xbox Series X and S for Nintendo Switch as well. So... Uh, came out on most of the current gen consoles and just a heads up we'll have some spoilers ahead if you're sensitive to that uh, Clint I think you suggested that we play this because you were interested in checking it out uh, during our sort of end of the year cast yeah yeah for sure uh, I didn't know a whole bunch about Ori I just know that it's been like topping steam reviews forever and I never got a chance to play the first one and I just after looking at screenshots and reviews I just knew I wanted to play it so it's kind of fun going in uh blank slate had no idea what I was going to be getting into. I remember I played Ori in the Blind Forest back when it came out in uh, about 2015, I think. And I have always been intrigued, you know, for the sequel that came out five years later, just in 2020. And uh, I'm really glad I got around to playing it. There's a lot of differences between these two games, and most of them are ones that I really appreciate, uh, having played Ori 1 and really enjoying it. So this is a, a, a really great game, like super artistic, super uh, well done from all aspects of the art and storytelling, and yet done very minimalistically on on the storytelling front as well, from my perspective. It's just, it's an artful game in many respects. Now, I believe one of the differences between the two is that Ori and the Blind Forest was more of a uh, 2D sprite game, right? Uh, It was. So this Ori Ori and the Blind Forest was sort of all hand-drawn 2D sprites, and, and as you said, uh, Will of the Wisps is all completely 3D models, um, although you can't really tell that by looking at it. Like, it's very light 3D, right? It's um, still done in an isometric sort of 2D, you know, Metroid-style view, right? Those models are now 3D modeled, and there was a lot of interesting things that the studio, Studio Moon, did to make that, you know, continue to sing and continue to look uh, even better than it did with the fully hand-drawn uh, art of the first game. I'd have to agree with that. So I, I, I had every intention of going back and playing uh, all of Blind Forest after playing the second one. And the first thing I noticed was that the second one just ran smoother and it looked more vibrant. And I, I think that they did a good job of keeping uh, the, the visual style the same, but just kind of boosting it up quite a bit. I, I totally hear you on that. And I think that like the colors that they brought into Ori 2, you know, Ori and the Will of the Wisps, like just pop a lot more and that's interesting because you'd think like if they're going for like a higher tech look that they might need to like sort of you know i don't know about you but i think of like when things went 3d things tended to get a little duller in terms of the color aspects but not so with ori they not only brought it into 3d but also like cranked up the saturation and made every area of the world just sort of sing with color yeah, for sure. That's actually, you asked why I wanted to play this game. I Just from looking at a couple of the screenshots, like I remember one screenshot that just stood out to me, and it's where you're seeing uh, the spider boss and all of its bright glowing eyes on the dark screen behind it. I really wish I could have played this in my theater setup. As you know, my basement's being redone right now, so I was not able to play on my OLED. Um, but this game was probably 
like a poster child for HDR and, and how super bright contrast lights against a dark backdrop like make things really pop. The art direction for this game was top-notch. Color schemes and uh, shading, lighting, um, not for realism's sake, but for servicing a particular aesthetic viewpoint. Yeah, the impact. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I know lighting was one thing that um, really benefited from that new 3D approach. They could add a whole different depth of field. I watched a really interesting video from Digital Foundry that sort of showed how they put together all these different slices of background drop. Um, I think it was seven total different layers, you know, the front one being the 3D layer with the characters and then, you know, slowly panning into isometric levels of background that showed how they could do all of this interesting stuff with lighting and depth and making the whole world look just so rich and textured compared to what they were able to do with just uh, the slightly less involved hand-drawn backgrounds of Ori in the Blind Forest. Um, But maybe before we dive into anything else, we should talk about who actually made this game. Uh, Because Moon Studios has a super interesting story from my perspective in that it is a virtual studio. This team does not have and never had an office. Um, They instead recruited talents from all over the world when they formed. Initially for Ori 1, it was 15 people. Now for Ori and the Will of the Wisps, it's about 80. And um, it's just kind of a fascinating story of a a sort of virtual studio. Yeah, it's very hard to do any sort of remote work, as I'm sure people have seen over the last year, that um, productivity can be harder to maintain or getting that sort of sense of team purpose and camaraderie is hard to cultivate just over Zoom meetings and uh, Skype meetings and things like that. So whatever these guys did, it seems to be working very well. Yeah, they seem to have put together a cohesive vision and and, and really honed in on... They were really able to hone in the whole artistic experience. So you guys were talking about visuals earlier, but I think one of the things that popped most to me after playing the game was the actually the sound design. Yeah, the sound in this game is fantastic like every single um, piece of sound design from the first thunderstorm that you see in the world that sort of sets off the events of the game uh, down to uh, the orchestrated soundtrack like uh, just it's gorgeous Uh, you know there's parts of it that uh, call back to some of the soundtracks and tracks in Ori 1 and you know all the new stuff that they did for this game is just beautiful there's it's it's really varied too like there's really driving tracks really pensive tracks and it's just sort of like moseying relaxing tracks too actually b- beyond that just just the ambient sound was amazing it's probably this is probably some of the best 3d audio I- i've heard so like did you guys get to play this do you play with headphones or what did you play with headphones yeah i had i did a combination of headphones and like my stereo setup at my computer I just had my regular speaker computer, or laptop speaker. Not. Computer. I've got I've got like a little Logitech 5.1 in here, so it's nothing fancy, but uh, it had me turning around like a lot, like because like the forest actually sounded like it was all around me, like there'd be like a little cricket chirping in the background over here, and then like some weird animal off on this side, and like. 3D audio, a lot of times they just kind of say, I don't know, throw it at all the speakers and it sounds like it's all around you. But this had like, I don't know, felt like you were in a forest. They actually did a really good job of, of making you feel like that. That's awesome. Um, I guess we'll we'll call out at this time Gareth Coker, who uh, composed 
not only uh, Blind Forest soundtrack, but also this game. So those thematic score elements uh, he was able to drop on his previous experience to, to bring in here. And yeah, I don't have anybody named who did sound design, but uh, clearly they're good at their job. Um, it's always nice to see them take advantage of the technology that we have available to us. Uh, and yeah, I think 3D, like you said, 3D sound is something that's underutilized for games, probably because of the thin slice of the people <laughs> that are actually going to be able to experience it. But hey, it's always nice when it's there, right? It definitely added to it. I, it was the immersion was a lot higher because of I don't know. It was the first thing I noticed about the game when I turned it on. It wasn't the visuals, which I thought it was going to be. It was how the sound uh, made me feel like I was there. Well, that's that's pretty cool, and I'm glad to hear that. But yeah, I guess as we as we go into talking about uh, the actual game here, uh, it is a, a you know a technical marvel as as we said. But um, I guess it's important to talk about what you're actually doing in this game and. Uh, you basically uh, take control of Ori, the titular character, who is our cute, glow-in-the-dark uh, little animal protagonist. Uh, and he sort of jumps, climbs, glides, and uh, does all different sort of puzzles as you sort of explore a Metroidvania-esque world, getting abilities and upgrades. And um, in this game, you are actually playing alongside the child of the antagonist of the previous game, uh, Ku, the sort of owl bird the daughter, I believe, of Kuro, who is the antagonist of Ori in the Blind Forest. See, I kind of missed what that whole relationship was. I thought there had to have been something special about it. What happened to his wing? I assume that was something from the first game? Yeah, no, there that wasn't. So th- there was really, at the end of Ori in the Blind Forest, you basically just see the egg, right? And so Ori sort of forms this adoptive family with Naru and Gumo, the little spider guy and the little panda-looking guy. Um... And that whole story was basically about, like, you know, Ori was sort of an orphan of a spirit tree, and his found family of those two, Naro and Gumo, was sort of the the driving force behind that narrative. And then at the end of it, the antagonist, that bird Koro, uh, had an egg. And a long story short, you know, I don't want to spoil too much of Blind Forest since that's outside the purview of this discussion, but Koro... Um, passes away and her egg is left and Ori and his family sort of adopt her in and that's all they show at the end of Blind Forest. At the very beginning of um, Will of the Wisps that egg hatches and um, you know Ku's adopted into the family, Ori becomes the best friend but she has a disabled wing. Uh, She can't really fly, she's just sort of a fledgling and I don't know if I was just in like a weird mood when I was watching that initial segment but like I like teared up during that because it was so like sort of sad and affecting like these characters are so well animated and so alive that I like you know you really feel for these characters even though you just met them five minutes ago you know I completely agree with that. I did not play the original game, so coming into this, I knew that Ori was probably the little white meerkat-looking guy that was going to be jumping around a lot. Um, So this opening sequence was very well done. It served well, both as a tutorial level and as kind of like setting the stakes narratively. Um, Because you see Ori, they start... Ori and his uh, family start raising Ku, and then you see, like... You know, Ku's wing is damaged and he can't or she can't fly. Um, And you kind of get into this quest. They sort of have these ideas. They have to start making uh, Ku 
um, being able to uh, letting her fly. And the animation, despite the fact that there's no dialogue and almost no written text whatsoever, um, the animation is so good that it gets you that emotional attachment. This was really some Pixar-level shit right here. I was going to say what it reminded me a lot of is the beginning or the opening to the film Up, you know, where they have that first five minutes where you're introduced to the characters and you're given sort of their entire history. And by the end of it, you're just like in tears because they've like painted this whole vignette of uh, a full life. And then, you know, you're thrust into the main action of the movie and you're like, wait a minute, that wasn't the whole thing. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm crying already. (laughs) Yeah. So I agree with you. This is some some Pixar level shit. But um, I I think it's it's worth noting the callback, right? They try and fix her wing with a feather, which is actually a feather of Kuros, the the bird from the previous game, and it was a key upgrade in that game, right? It was it'll thing that allowed Ori to glide and, and does again in this game, and you lose that uh, right off the bat in this game because they do end up fixing her wing with that feather, but the inciting action of this game is. She is able to fly with the aid of that feather, but uh, she flies too close to the sun, or rather the storm, and Ori and Ku go down in this fierce thunderstorm over the land of Niwen, is sort of a foreign land that they do not uh, know anything about, and, uh, you know, they are separated, and that sort of starts the action of the game. The title works better than, like, Ori in the Blinder Forest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, they couldn't do Blind Blinder Blindest, or, you know, they wouldn't be able to do all those great colors. There you go. As Ori starts to explore uh, Niwen, the area that he lands in, he starts meeting uh, some new characters, right? Separated from his, his family, he starts meeting these little meerkat creatures, the Moki. And they uh, direct him to Kolok, who serves as sort of the sage or guide for uh, the land of Niwen. And, you know, he's this big frog, bullfrog-looking creature. And uh, Sounds like an ant from the Lord of the Rings, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess I, I thought this guy was the guy that was narrating, because, right, your narrator voice is like this huge, deep narrator. We'll talk a little bit about the narrator reveal later, but um, suffice it to say, I was wrong on that one. <laughs> so Kolak, you know, he he sort of sets you off and says, "All right, well, your little companion probably landed in the silent forest. You got to go, you know, clear the the waters before you can do that." So you're set off on your first quest to like clear this windmill or this yeah this mill um, that will cause the water to flow again and you know allow you access to the larger world of of Niwen. Uh, one of the things I liked about this game is I don't know if you guys remember in. Uh, what was that, like 2006, 2010 or so, when the physics platformer came into vogue? Like you had, um, and yet it moves, um, other things like that, that uh, had you solving puzzles using physics. And they were more primitive-ish physics back then, but it was a big thing back then. This game was a platformer with physics. And I don't just mean like gravity or something like that, but like you jump on a tree branch and it sways up and down. And I, I think this was really, really well highlighted in the mill section uh, when you would get these water wheels to start turning. That would be one of the th- goals you would have in each of these little levels, the what get the wheels to start turning again. And then you have to um, 
swing onto the wheel and jump at the right time to fling yourself in the correct angle to get to where you need to go. And just the this was kind of like platforming with a side of physics as opposed to you having to manipulate physics directly to solve the puzzles. And I like that a whole lot better. Didn't Portal start all that pretty much? I feel like that was like the first big physics game that I remember. Uh, yeah, but that wasn't so much a platformer there. That was more a puzzler. Yeah. That was a big 3D one. I'm thinking of Limbo. I keep trying to think of the name of this game. Mm. Limbo is the one I'm thinking of where it was, you know, very simple black and white physics puzzler it was the first like sort of big indie puzzle platformer, right? Yeah, that was another one. And um, yeah, you're right. I think that that was a game where like the the gimmick and because we were early enough in the, the indie timeline, this was still a gimmick um, was sort of the physics aspect of sort of a narrative driven puzzle platformer. Mm-hmm. And this game um, you know, given it was 10 years later, uh, I think, I don't remember when Limbo came out exactly, but several years later, um, was able to marry that aspect, you know, uh, atmospheric puzzle platformer with actually good mechanics. The one I'm thinking of is Gish. And the thing was with those guys, it was like the physics were so finicky. It was hard to get the rock to drop in just the right way to solve the puzzle. And uh, I never got too far into that game for that reason. Yeah, this was almost like, in this one, the, the physics wasn't like the main dish. It was like something on the side that just kind of, again, it was more about immersion than anything. When you jump on the log, the log will give a little bit. There was not a whole lot of puzzling specifically about the physics. It was just something added to the world, which, yeah. I don't know, it was nice. I think the, the the puzzling and like what you're actually trying to accomplish and, and do as you move throughout this world is a lot more to do with your traversal mechanics and the things that you unlock as you go, right? So I think it's as good a time as any to talk about the skills you unlock. Um, you know, you start the game off with a pretty basic sort of jump and sort of hop up the wall sort of thing, a wall jump. And then you unlock the sort of typical Metroidvania things like a, a double jump a glide, which I alluded to with the feather, and a dash, which is sort of an air dash thing. But to me, the shining star of these unlockable abilities is bash, which uh, makes a return from Ori 1. And this is uh, a thing where you go to a projectile or an enemy, and basically you propel them one way, and you go the other way. Um, So this has just so many applications throughout the game. You use it to Uh, basically triple jump or infinite jump, depending on how many things are there. Uh, You can use it to redirect projectiles, open doorways. To me, Bash is like the Mario-level signature mechanic of the Ori series. Uh, I agree with that. It was a mechanic where you would have to place yourself in harm's way. Like normally you see the the sparkly ball of fire coming at you, and you're like, oh man, I got a duck here. But this game forced you to head towards it, which was a different um, different mechanic than a lot of platformers go with. I thought it was cool, except for it, the second I saw it, I'm like, oh, God, they're going to make me do some really ridiculous platforming with this later down the road. <laughs> I'd better just get used to it now. Yeah, little did you know, you would literally no longer need the ground once you uh, got far enough down the line with that line of thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Phase three, final boss, no floor. Dear God. Now, I probably died 20 times before I had to look it up online. I think that final boss fight could have used some better queuing leading up to that moment. Nah, I, I knew what had to be done. I just sucked at doing it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, this game is interesting because they give you a ton of new traversal mechanics throughout it. And it's not that long of a game, right? Like, I think this game probably could have used to me to be 
and I hate to say this because I, I feel like it's already a pretty generous game, but it could have actually been longer for how much mechanical progression you get throughout it in terms of traversal. Yeah, they. I, I have a note in here. I, I felt like they were always giving you stuff at the beginning of the game, and maybe what they could have done is spaced it out a little bit more. Now, it did feel really good at the beginning because I got to say, all right, I'm going to bring this up a lot. This game, to me, was just a hell of a lot like Hollow Knight, which is great because they're, they're both <laughs> yeah. wonderful games. But uh, Hollow Knight made me wait way too long to get the double jump to the point where I was pissed. Like, freaking <laughs> give it to me already. I've seen 30 things I should should have done with it. Um, this game gives it to you pretty quick, and they do that with a lot of the things. But you're right. Towards the back end of the game, uh, you're not getting a whole lot anymore. And actually, you are talking about the glide earlier. I totally forgot I had it. Because, honestly, they give you so many things so quick that sometimes you just forget everything that you got because you didn't really have to spend time with it too long. I kind of felt like the later gives as well were not as um, not as impressive as the earlier ones. Like the sand level and the water level. Both of those give you this kind of dashing ability. One lets you dig through the ground, but the other one just lets you kind of swim faster. Uh, so that, you know kind of felt like a little bit of a rehash over there and they did some interesting things with it but i don't think it was as interesting as the earlier mechanics you got yeah all the aerial ones are definitely where where this game sort of shines and yeah i think you're you're right clint that the glide sort of feels like uh it's unnecessary after a point because you get so many other ways to get across a gap yeah bash bash triple jump bash triple jump bash 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 you just keep going yeah. <laughs> oh no, with the glide, I actually like their glide levels where you are navigating with the updrafts coming up from you and you had to get around the little tunnel of spikes. I thought those were well done. It was cool. I just forgot I had it. I actually had to look up one of those parts. I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to be doing here? Actually, <laughs> I forgot I'm, you had it. <laughs> I'm pretty I'm pretty sure well, I know for a fact that there were a couple moments like this where I literally brute forced the game without the thing I was supposed to do it with. Yep. It lets you do that. You can sequence break a little bit in this game. And I did. I accidentally got to the end of the game. I forced my way magically to basically <laughs> the last gate. And then after doing all that, it's like, sorry, you can't be here yet. I'm like, what? <laughs> Go get the rest of the wisps, sucker. Uh, yeah. So that is maybe one thing that I like, like about the game and then also dislike. They don't gatekeep very well. Or they don't, they don't signal the gates very well. No, every time I did something, I'm like, this is freaking hard. Why did they make this so hard? And then I realized, like, I'm not supposed to be here yet. Then I'm like, why did you let me get this far if I'm not supposed to be here? There's been a couple of times along, just going along the main path where I managed to sneak my way onto a higher ledge. Um, I do think they could have gate, they could have uh, signaled that sands area as like, here's the last wisp you're supposed to get. Um, yes. But they had the warping mechanic, too. So once you got there once, it wasn't, you know, you got through the puzzles once already. Thank God for that warping mechanic. Yeah, warp to the last room. Actually, the end, the end part. So I did the beginning part in, in one day. And then I came back to the next day and I did some cleanup. But I'd already done so much and like gotten to so many places I wasn't supposed to get that by the time it was time for me to start collecting the wisps, that part didn't take me any time at all because I just started warping between places. So there's a couple of things about the basic mechanics of these, these things that you get out of the box in this Metroidvania that I think are worth mentioning. The first one is your basic jumping ability. 
Um, it's a very horizontal jump. There's not much mm. vertical jump to it, too. And even when you get the double jump, that hardly gets you any higher. Uh, it was very interesting how they designed the levels where this kind of horizontal versus vertical thing becomes a big issue. I thought that was some clever bit of game design over there. Yeah, bash is how you get up. Jump is how you get over, basically. Ori, to me, feels like an evolution of Sonic. Like, he moves really fast left to right, but he isn't so good hmm. on the up and down. Yeah. Um, un- unless you're, you know, situationally able to use, like, a grapple or something like that. And you can really get up some speed with Ori in this game. Like, you can fly through these levels if you know what you're doing with your dash, your jump, your grapple, and, you know, getting the right paths through the level. It's a little more freeform than Sonic, but that makes sense. You know, we're 30 years down the line from that game. Uh, yeah. It's not a momentum runner like Sonic is either. It's a platformer, but I still think it's a different thing they're going for. Another way that Ori does get up, though, is he climbs, climbs walls. That's um, not something yeah, you like, see in all Metroidvanias, and I think it's one of the... Uh, but it is something a, you see in Sonic, Knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he does it so slow. Ori does it so gracefully. Actually, if I had to pick a signature move for Ori, I'm torn between the bash and the climb. Because it just felt like it was such a, I'm a forest critter. Of course I climb up trees. This is what I do. I'm a, I'm a damn squirrel right here, you know? And that did it, feel liberating. You didn't feel like every time you hit a wall, you were going to hit it and fall down. Like, it was, it felt more freeform because of that. You could climb mm-hmm. up anything. And then because it had the horizontal jump and not a vertical jump off those walls, too, it was still not a game-breaking thing to have that climb in there. Agree. And, you know, I don't actually think this game is that much like Sonic, but damn, now if I don't want a Sonic Metroidvania (laughs) right now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What are your movement abilities? You go faster and you go faster? (laughs) Yeah, fast, faster, you know, lightning shield, fire shield, you know. I I think you could make a Sonic Metroidvania. There's probably a mod out there somewhere. Uh Um, uh, At any rate, the other half of this coin, right, if we're talking about the abilities you get, are... Um, combat abilities, right? So we have fully ignored the most innovative and new half of this game for Ori and the Will of the Wisps compared to Blind Forest. In this game, you immediately get a motherfucking sword, (laughs) Um, which did not happen in Ori and the Blind Forest. You were basically stuck tappa-tappa-tapping X and having little light balls fly out at your nearest foe as a homing missile. In this one, you just get a lightsaber right off the bat. So, um big difference there for sure i i played a little bit of ori one and i gotta say the combat was so much better in ori two almost to the point where it's kind of hard to go back at this point i i was gonna say the same thing like i wouldn't recommend really going back to ori one unless you know what you're in for and that is um combat is super simple in ori one and kind of non-existent honestly ori two's big innovation to me is bringing in that melee combat um you know, bringing in these big arena boss fights. And um, it feels, like you said, Clint, a lot more like Hollow Knight. Like, to me, they've borrowed a lot of the, the Hollow Knight DNA for this this outing. Yeah, for sure. So actually, while I was playing this, I think I told you guys earlier, I have like three pages of notes, and more than half of it is just how it's exactly like Hollow Knight. But <laughs> um, this got me thinking while I was playing the game, like, this, is, this feels so much like Hollow Knight to me. And I just, in my mind, I'm like, I bet you Ori, Ori 1 came out, then a couple years later, Hollow Knight came out, and then a couple years after that, Ori 2 came out. And sure enough, I looked it up afterwards, and that was exactly the case. So Ori 1 was a great 
game in its own right. Hollow Knight was an awesome thing on its own. And for me, Ori 2 feels like what Hollow Knight would be if a studio that was more than two people made it. Like, this is what happens when you get a serious budget behind a game like that. And it was, I mean, they did a really good job. But it does feel a lot like Hollow Knight. I agree with that, but I also think they, like, put it into a juicer and, like, squeezed out all of the, like, juiciest bits of Hollow Knight and condensed them into, like, a 15-hour experience as opposed to Hollow Knight's, you know, 40. up to 30. Yeah, 30, um, 40, whatever you say. <laughs> yeah, and, and and maybe I was feeling this a little more than, than most people because I literally just got done playing Hollow Knight a couple weeks ago. So I, I just played that game, but there were certain, I mean, we will talk about all this, I'm sure, but there were certain areas that were just flat out complete i don't want to call them ripoffs but they were uh the uh god there was an area that was exactly like deep nest it was like 100 oh, yeah <laughs> it, it, it was it was flat out deep nest and then the other area was just like crystal uh the crystal caverns with pink spikes and lasers everywhere i'm like this is exactly the same <laughs> you're you're right yeah you're talking about moldwood depths and yeah yeah it is it is just like that and you even get um like a light mechanic in there you never get a light ability in um Hollow Knight that I remember. You but do. You got to get your yeah. You got to get your little lantern. Otherwise, oh, you're right. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. It, so yeah, there's a lot, and there's you know what's interesting is like I feel like as much as they're also pulling on on Hollow Knight, they are pulling on Ori One because the first area you go to that windmill that I was talking about is a very big callback to the first dungeon in uh, Ori in the Blind Forest, uh, the Ginzo Tree, and you know down to like it's the first point where Ori's signature theme comes in which i immediately recognized despite it being like five years in the past for me and huh. like oh that's the signature theme of the game holy shit and like you know that those we'll talk about the escape sequences later but damn if your pulse doesn't increase during the, that sequence you're probably dead So for me, I think this game started off feeling very familiar Hollow Knight to me, uh, both with the, you know, Ori having the sword. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about the shard system later on. Uh, mm. But I feel like this game was more of a platformer than a combat sort of thing. They had some combat. They, it was good combat, but it wasn't the focus like it was for Hollow Knight. This game, the platforming was the focus as it was in several of the boss fights, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on, too. Yeah, to that to that end, I feel like this game's mechanics could have supported more combat. Like, they, I feel like they underexplored the combat in this game. Oh, no, I like, liked the more platformy focus on this one, actually. I hear you. Like, I, I think they did platforming good, and I think at the end of the day, they did platforming better than the combat. But the combat to me was still underexplored. Like I think there could have been roughly twice as many bosses and a lot more like, like those, those areas where you were doing like combat arena encounters to get an upgrade or something like that were some of the funnest things in the game for me. Like they like really tested the boundaries of like your ability to move around in a, an enclosed space sort of Mega Man style and take out these guys. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah. They could have definitely upped the ante. I mean, 
going from area to area, you don't have to do a whole bunch of combat. In fact, you can almost skip combat by being good at the platforming if, if, if you really want mm-hmm. to. Actually, it kind of lets you choose. Like, do you want to tank your way through this or do you just want to fly through like a crazy woodland creature? You can do either. Um, like Sonic. <laughs> <laughs> like Enemies Sonic. are just platforms, man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but the ultimate the ultimate set pieces of this game... Um, we're definitely around boss arenas and not just the fights, but the chases and all that too. So yeah, I think they could have done more with it and I would have liked to have seen more of it, but you know what, what we got was super polished. So if I get that super polished four or five bosses instead of 10 that are just kind of like, nah, I'll, I'll take that too. I totally agree. I d- I'm always going to advocate for polish over, you know, more content. Um, I just think like they put a lot of work into designing the mechanics around this system and they left some stuff on the table in terms of exploring it, which isn't a bad thing. You know, a sequel could be out there. Well, considering the combat leap from one to two, if they do the same thing from two to three, you'll have your wish. (laughs) Oh boy. I don't know if I'm ready, but uh, if timelines are to be considered, I got about five years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about what all is going into that combat. Cause we mentioned the sort of, uh, spirit edge, the sword you get right off the bat, quick attacks. Um, I really quickly unlocked the spirit smash, which is basically like a, a big hammer type weapon, sort of more strong attack, sweeping blows. Never actually used that one myself. Really? You didn't use the smash? I think the first thing I bought was the spear. Cause it's like. It destroys unstable ground, which I'm like, of course I'm going to need this in a Metroidvania. And it, well, so did the Smash. It was also a ranged sort of thing. I mean, maybe there's unstable ground on the ceiling. I don't know what's coming at me. <laughs> I come prepared is what I'm saying. No, that's cool. And But yeah, they do. The interesting thing to me was that the combat additional abilities were all sold to you, whereas the traversal ones were things you found. Um, for the most part, that, that rule held true. Um, but yeah, like you said, you get a spear, you can get, uh, arrows, which you can fire at a distance. Um, you get a, at some point you get a flap, which allows you to shoot a gust of wind and that can fan flames and move things and fire you know, some things in the environment. You get the firebomb, hmm. which at a later point you can bash off of, which is sweet. Mm. I was really annoyed with the bash the second it said, you can bash off this. I'm like, what are you going to ask me to do? Now I can just do this anywhere. Like, I get really annoyed. I'm like, this is going to be stupid and complicated. And there's going to be things I don't know how to get to. And I'm going to have to do some ridiculous you get the ability sequence and like, to get God there. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Can I put this back in the chest? <laughs> yeah, I don't it, want It does this. almost seem like too big of a opportunity space is opened up with that power. Because basically, like, if you couldn't secret sequence break the shit out of the game at that point, you could definitely do it now. Yeah, that's the anything <laughs> anywhere if you try hard enough kind of thing. That mountain was the first uh, wisp that I went for. So I had the other three. And I there were quite a few times where I was able to skip having that area special ability because i could just bash my own way to that damn i that was like the second last area it sounds like i did these areas in the complete wrong order because i did the underground area first which in which you get the most useless power so did i the light shield yeah Um, again like uh late abilities aren't so good there's out of the four different wisp areas only the uh fireball is really an interesting platforming thing well, that and it makes the the ice one easier because you don't have to do those stupid puzzles where you 
again, bash off of a thing 10 times to, God, <laughs> move it down the line. You could just throw your firebomb right at the thing at the end and be like, done, bitch. Oh, that would be so <laughs> useful. Yeah, bashing, like the transporting the little bullet via bashing was probably some of the more difficult things to do in the game yeah i and you could just that and you could just skip it if you have the ability <laughs> so dumb <laughs> oh, that made me so okay. mad afterwards because there was like one left and i went i'm like if this works i'm gonna be so pissed and it worked i'm like god damn it <laughs> so much time so much time Yeah, I mean, I guess that's interesting that they do, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this now, but the game does open up to you after that first windmill area, and you get, you know, from Quolock, four or three other areas that you need to go and retrieve wisps at in order to sort of power your, your little companion wisp up to save Ku, who had tragically been curb stomped by... Uh, Shriek. Does this sound like another game that we played where you do the initial area, then you got to go find three things that you can pick at any time? Well, these are four mm-hmm. things here, but sounds like sounds like a few different games. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure in, Hollow Knight uh, did not invent the. What is it? Hollow Souls, Dark Knight, <laughs> ho- uh, Hollow Soul, Dark. Yeah, that one. Wind Waker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, it's it's a Metroidvania trope, and all of this dates dates right on back to Super Metroid, where you had to defeat the three bosses and yeah, or four bosses, put their little gemstones in the central elevator, and then go to the end of the game. And you know that this is a Metroidvania. What do you expect? Um, this is what we love about Metroidvanias, right? You discover, you get rewards, you acquire skills. The world tells this cool story that you're not really listening to; you're just sort of seeing it. Those are to me what make a Metroidvania sing. Um, see all of our podcasts on previous Metroidvanias. <laughs> see, and, and that makes me kind of happy because I didn't have a Super Nintendo growing up, so I missed a lot of the Metroidvania uh, era. I don't feel like they really had them much on N64, which is when I was finally allowed to get a system. But now that I'm coming, now that they're coming back into style, I'm getting to play some of these new ones, and it turns out these are some of my favorite games. Yeah, I'm really like I'm I'm loving this actually, like all, getting Clint's fresh takes on Metroidvanias and. <laughs> um, you know, it's a great genre, right? And there's so many good ones out now. Hollow Knight probably being one of the best, and Ori being, in my opinion, way up there. For sure. Absolutely. I'm going to dog on this game being an awful lot like Hollow Knight a lot, but Hollow Knight is also one of my favorite games, so I can't be Not too mad. I can't be too mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, for, for how much it is like Hollow Knight, there is a distinct difference in how they play, right? Like, to me, Ori is much faster paced. It's much more, like, lateral, whereas... Um, Hollow Knight is a lot more calculated to me. Like it's a difference between playing Mega Man and playing Sonic, I guess. Yep. No, I think Hollow Knight was trying to bring in some of that Souls DNA, which was completely lacking from Ori. It was not trying to be a punishing difficulty. It was not trying to make you lose any progress when you died. A lot of there's that whole flavor of Hollow Knight that doesn't exist in this one. And I, I love the checkpointing in this game. Yes. V- yeah, this is very true. So, again, if this were like the Harry Potter series, this would be books one through three. Uh, <laughs> Hollow Knight and Dark Souls are, are at the end. Like, this is this has some of the same DNA. Like, if, if I were trying to get somebody to get into a Souls game, this is where I'd have them start. It's not depressing. It's not soul-crushingly hard. It's got but pretty colors. But how is it Souls-like? 
uh, I don't know, the decay. No, I, I, Clint's on to something here. There's there's like environmental storytelling. There's um, Metroidvania elements are strongly represented in Dark Souls 2. I yeah. think I think he's he's definitely onto something here. Uh, I'm not seeing it. You guys got to convince me more. Well, he, hear me out. God, it's 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 like copy and paste. There was a world. Everything was good, <laughs> but then the decay. The decay. Or or <laughs> the corruption or whatever the fuck you want to call it. In, in the dark sign. <laughs> every last one of these games, it's it's the exact thing. Everything was going great. People got too close to power, and then whatever it's called starts making things go bad. And then you're fighting what was your your fellow man, right? So the hollowed out people in Dark Souls, the <laughs> fucked up bugs in in Hollow Knight, and now the sad woodland creatures that used to be your friends. No, see, yeah. like, in this game, I mean, first of all, Hol- uh, Dark Souls did not invent the idea of people getting too close to power and corruption following. We're getting into semantics here. I think what we're saying is there are similar aspects in these games that, like, bind them together thematically. I, I hear you that, like, this isn't a Souls-like. You're- I'm never going to convince you of that because neither of us believe it. <laughs> no, it, it, it. It's an intro. It's an intro to that style of gaming, but without right. the... Something you could put in front of a middle school kid that he's not just going to be depressed as shit at the end of it. Like, I don't know. Like It's an onboarding to mechanics that could later down the line uh, convince you that playing Dark Souls might be a good idea. Which, um, you know, <laughs> woe, woe is you if that ends yeah. up being the case. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the gateway drug. You do Ori, then you do Hollow Knight, then you do Dark Souls, then you hate yourself yeah. and you play Sekiro. There you go. And then you yeah, really hate yeah. yourself. Exactly. <laughs> I'm with you though, Clint. The gateway drug metaphor holds, and you know, there's, I don't know. I think this is like a, I'd say this is like a mid-tier Metroidvania in terms of difficulty. It's certainly not easy, but I don't think you're right. It's definitely not difficult, and. To that end, like, yeah, if you like played games before, this isn't a bad one to like say. Here's a Metroidvania. If you like this, you'll probably like most of them. Yeah, and and again, it, it touched on some of those like deep notes from the storytelling, but with also keeping it light, which was good. Honestly, I can't take another. God, this has been just like the most depressing year, and I just it's so hard to get into games like I'll try to play Resident Evil. I'm like, fuck. And then I'll play Dark Souls. I'm like, God, like, this is just like, can somebody be having a good time for God's sake? This one was at least yeah. light and breezy. And it, 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 the world felt good to be in, even if it was slightly messed up. Yeah. And then you play, I don't know, Tropico or, or something about like Banana Republics and political corruption. And you're like, fuck, <laughs> why do I even need to play that? Just look outside. <laughs> yeah. And then you play Deus Ex and it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, you're right. It, they're. You know, I don't think this is a happy game by any means, but it's like a relatively uplifting one, even if it does hit like serious notes from time to time. It was hopeful. Where the other games yeah. aren't aren't hopeful, this one was at least yeah. hopeful. And compassionate too. The yeah. main mm-hmm. antagonist in this game, Shriek, is um the story is told very well, I think, and that ending scene where she goes back to her birthplace and kind of snuggles up with the petrified statues of her 
what I presume were her parents. You know, that 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 was a little emotional moment right there for sure. That that was the most touching moment of the game for me. Actually, that was the one that had me welling up. I was just like, because you keep seeing this person as the bad guy, and then you see like why they were the way they were. Like, yeah, there. When you get that story arc after um, finishing the mountain, right, and the big bear tells you about her past and how she's basically just sort of you know, a victim of the prejudice of the, the owl birds, like Ku's parents and, you know, her brethren. It's pretty sad, right? Like she is a completely a victim of the circumstance of her, her birth and her disability. This is an interesting game in how it con- comments on that disability. I don't think it fully goes the whole way there, but it does show how, you know, prejudices like that can turn someone into something they really don't want to be. Yeah, this is so much better than bad guy, bad. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which, yeah. yeah. And I wish they explored that a little more. Like, the the saddest thing to me about the Shriek arc is Shriek doesn't get a chance to be redemptive. If you would, in Ori 1, Kuro does get a redemption arc, you know, Ku's mother um, at the end of it. And Shriek never gets that. There's a point where she is offered a redemption, but she turns it away. She turns away right. from it. Which, I think that's a legitimate storytelling choice. It is. It's yeah. just very sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Not everyone gets a happy ending. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's interesting, for sure. But um, other than that, there are cute animals. <laughs> <laughs> Meerkats, man. Meerkats. <laughs> Why don't we talk a bit more um, about, you know, where we left off with the, the combat? Oh, charms? You want to talk about charms? Yeah, so, so let's, let's, <laughs> let's go back to combat and talk a bit about the shards. Because, you know, we got charms, we got shards, we got Hollow Knight, we got Ori. <laughs> um. <laughs> so in this game, the combat system, you have different abilities you can access. Uh, being like the spirit smash, the, I don't know, spirit spear we referred to earlier. You get a bow and arrow, you get to flap your wings, all these different things you can do. Uh, Then there's also this shard system, where it gives you passive bonuses, uh, it gives you some new abilities, uh, but it's not necessarily new things you can do, it's things you can do more effectively. Um, And this, you know, this was one of the things I thought had one of the greatest resemblances to Hollow Knight. Absolutely. This is how you create your build in the same way that Hollow Knight let you do the same thing. It's sort of the the way you can, you know, allocate your quote-unquote skill points to play the way you want to play. Uh, one key difference, though, I, th- I think it's a subtle difference, but um, in Hollow Knight, it was your abilities that you sharded. Like, uh, if you wanted to do the magic fireball, that would have to be one of your shards or one of your charms that you had. In this game, that's one of your abilities your shards benefit things, but it's not like you can't cast fireball if you don't equip it at a save point. Yeah, the, I'd say the only issue I took with with this, and this is kind of where I felt like the game was most broken, is that some of those charms were just flat out necessary. Like, I felt like there was only like one or two slots that, that I could really change. So the one that makes you stick to walls, needed. I, I, I yeah. would consider mm-hmm. it needed. Uh, the, the magnetic one that pulls in everything around you, 
Also, I actually didn't use that one. Really? Oh my god, it made <laughs> such a difference. Okay, let's just say all, all that stuff that falls into the water that you can't get, whatever, like that all, that all. Okay, anyway, I felt that t- to be very needed. Triple jump also should have been a move that you bought. I never even bought it. <laughs> I mean, if you'd, have, great if you'd have had it, you would have never taken it off of there. That, that, that's the thing, though. I think that's the one that let me uh, sequence break quite a bit. Yeah, but, but uh, they also had six different shard slots at the end of it if you did the combat shrines. So you had some room over there. Like, I never felt like I was having a shard in that unlocked a new combat strategy like you did in Hollow Knight. I I agree. Like, I, I think, to your point, it it allowed me to excel in what I wanted to do, what I already wanted to do. It didn't change the way I played. It just allowed me to do it better. But, you know, to your point, Clint, maybe if, if you're getting those more impactful ones earlier on, which it sounds like Josh and I didn't, but you did because you're the completionist among us. Um, then that could change the way you play entirely. I don't even know why I played like that. I feel like I was a little behind the eight ball, and then I just spent like two hours just cleaning up. I think I didn't realize <laughs> what the, the shrines were for, and then I found one, and I realized, holy shit, like, okay, <laughs> I, I can use more of these charms. And like I said, I didn't want to unequip some of these once I had them, so I went and did all of them, <laughs> like, all at once. And then I started getting all the life orbs and all that stuff, too. I started cleaning the map. Basically, I did the intro, I cleaned the map, and then I did the rest of the game. This is going to sound... This is exactly how you and I differed in playing um, uh, Ghost of Tsushima, too. You were the completionist going through and cleaning out areas before progressing, and I was the one mainlining through the main quest and then going back once I had all the abilities. (laughs) (laughs) I just know me. I I get bored at the end. If, if, If I let that stuff set and I get to the end, I probably won't go back, but if I do it as I go... But then I'm like... I get ADD about it. I'm like, oh, I got to get all of it. No, you're absolutely right. I did not go back and do any of that shit. Yeah. <laughs> I think I finished the game with 37% complete. <laughs> I don't know if I did much better. I was sitting like 40s, I think. 44 maybe at most. Which goes to show there is a lot in this game. There's yeah. a lot of stuff in this game, right? And, you know, maybe, um, I, I, you know, it, it's not it's not a slight game. And despite the fact that we all finished it in, you know, a little over a dozen hours, it sounds like. 16 um, for me. Yeah, it was like 12 for me. And yeah, there's there's still, you know, it sounds like there's still 60% of the game we need to see. We made a big to-do earlier in the podcast about the arena combat in this game, and nowhere is that more apparent than the gigantic and titanic boss fights that you get in uh, throughout the course of this game. Um, You know, each area sort of has a signature enemy, a signature boss that you go in and face, and uh, on every occasion it is something to behold, right? These are big, beautiful drawings and sprites, and they're superbly animated, and they're interesting. do you guys have a favorite boss? What do you like about the bosses? What do you hate about the bosses? My favorite thing about the bosses was actually not fighting them. Um, one of the signature things of Ori, I think, were the chase sequences that the bosses would lead you through. And this happened with the first big boss at the windmill. You didn't actually fight him, which I was... I came in there very much expecting that because you already had a big boss fight with the wolf you fight at the very beginning with your little fire torch. Um, So you 
get to this boss and all of a sudden you're running away from him. This was something I really liked about the game was it's like your Ori, your little pipsqueak forest critter. These are gigantic things. You should run. And they made very interesting chase sequences. And that first one I really liked because it went through the level that you had gone through already, albeit a more tunneled version of it. Um, but that chase sequence, I think, was a key part of the Ori DNA. Yeah, and the thing I like most about the chases, too, is that they didn't always end the same way. So rather than feeling like you've done the same thing 20 times, you didn't know, am I going to have to fight this guy at the end? Or is this chase going to be it? Or what is it trying to show me? Because it wasn't always the same thing. Sometimes you get chased. You almost... Almost everything chased you at some point. Um, but that that's where the similarities ended. Sometimes they ended in boss fights. Sometimes they ended in a traversal puzzle. Sometimes, you know, you never knew where it was going to kick you out. So it always stayed fresh. Yeah, sometimes they happen during the middle of a boss fight. And yeah. this is actually my favorite thing that they brought over from Ori 1. The escape sequences are, like, literally the signature sequence or signature mechanic of, of Ori 1 in my mind. Um, they're always super dramatic. They have the soundtrack swelling in the background uh in er invariably ori's theme starts playing at some point and it's sort of characterized differently depending on the area you're in but it's always you know pulse pounding it's always you escape by the skin of your teeth and i i love it the only thing i don't love about these is they're never checkpointed oh i was gonna so say the that <laughs> the, the the final one if you go through it and die like five times it ruins it you're playing 10 minutes of the same exact sequence if you die at the very end of it by just going through it five times. And it and makes it so not painful. epic anymore. Yeah, like, it, it, it ruins the epic moment. Now, at the end, you're like, fuck this shit. Because if, if you miss the last jump, you're doing the whole... What Some of those are like two, three minutes long. It, it makes you feel great when you do it, but really shitty when you do it. <laughs> yeah. I kind of thought of it like an enforced Tony Hawk, and where it's, <laughs> if you don't get the perfect run... You have to restart. And this game He's just, you know, it, it, uh, <laughs> it hits that button for you. It's like, no, no, no. I got 500,000. That was good enough. <laughs> no, motherfucker. You're getting a million. You're going Smoke back. Smoke that whole pack of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> I did not understand this at all, especially given, uh, since we're talking about bosses, they checkpointed the bosses very well. So if bosses had multiple phases, you got checkpointed at at each phase. So you're not doing the whole thing. That pisses me off about boss fights, especially in Souls games and others. You get to phase three, you die, and you're back to... I don't need to prove I can do phase one again, damn it. I already did it. It's a time tax. But for some reason, they didn't apply that to the chase sequences, and I don't get it, but... Yeah, for, for a game that is so generous on the checkpointing in every other aspect of itself, I don't understand why they decided to throw that out the window for these escape sequences. Um, I did like how they at least kept the music playing so it didn't feel completely jarring when you died immediately and the track would suddenly start over. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, let, let's put it this way. These things work best if you finish them right on the first try. And, you know, 99% of people will not do that. So there's something wrong with the design here, but I still like it for some reason. I was going to say, and the chase sequences weren't especially easy either. Like... If you're going to have bad checkpointing, you want to feel epic, then you got to make it seem like it's harder than it is so the player just feels like a total god when they're done with it. But these chase sequences are actually pretty freaking hard. I would say harder than the boss fights in some places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I think the hardest thing in the game, the thing I retried the most on, was the sandworm escape. 
Um, and I one shot of that. It's the only one I one shot it. <laughs> oh, jeez, man, we really do play these games completely different. <laughs> you see, this is why it's good to talk to other people about their experiences. Um, but no, that's really interesting. Um, and you know, I, I don't hold anything against that sequence, but. I think the lack of checkpointing that we all detected in this escape sequence thing is real. And hopefully they improve on that in some way in the next game. Yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting about these chase sequences is um, there was a good bit of wiggle room for you with the impending wall of death. The, uh, the sandworm, the giant wall of water coming at you whatever it was, would actually slow down and your Ori could actually be engulfed inside that sprite or inside that uh, 3D model where you'd think you were done. But then if you are, you still keep going, you're able to pull yourself out and sometimes wiggle out of a dramatic position that way. I thought that they were more generous than I expected them to be in that particular aspect. Yeah, it definitely ebbs and flows. Like at some points, it definitely feels like you're way ahead of that wall of water. And then all of a sudden, it'll catch right up to your ass. And you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> and you can you can extricate yourself from a fucked situation in a variety of ways, which makes it really fun and dramatic. Dash, bash, dash, bash, dash, dash, bash. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Fireball. That's the, the Ori Konami <laughs> code. <laughs> yes, the Ori Konami code. Uh, up, down, left, right, A, B, Dash, 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 dash. Um, I gotta say, my my hands. Now, now, granted, I had to like rush this game. I haven't had a ton of time lately, so I played the entire game in two days. That's so sixteen hours in two days. Thank you, Emily, for letting me do that. Holy shit! Um, <laughs> Full time job right there. But well done. My hands, my fingers hurt after playing this game. I think because I was like bashing those buttons so hard, <laughs> bashing and dashing. some really interesting bosses in this game too clint alluded to the spider boss earlier mora who i think is who was my first big boss in the game and is like i said superbly animated the the physics the uh the physics uh attached to each part of the boss it's animated were just amazing uh you also get a few other uh, big bosses like that you get uh, quolock your frog dad uh, he is corrupted by some evil force. I think it's the force from the water mill, actually. And that was sort of a disturbing and affecting boss fight. Uh, a lot of sort of like, dude, what are you doing to my buddy action going on there? And I was really, uh, let's say, motivated to help Quolock in that boss fight. I am all for zombie dad fights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's it's another way to sort of drive pathos in the player, right? Like... This is your your guardian, your sage, the person who's supposed to be guiding you through this. And all of a sudden you see him being controlled by this evil force. You're like, oh, man, I got to do something about this. Yeah. And then, of course, the the final big boss fight in my book, uh, Shriek, which, uh, again, we alluded to before, but goes through three different phases, one of which the floor completely disappears and you're flying through the air, bashing and dashing your way into attacking uh, Shriek until eventually... Um, you succeed, and Shriek retreats, and you save the wisp that you are 
trying to use to reclaim the spirit of the land of Niwen. Yeah, and I will say, as epic as these boss fights are, I was never... It was never obnoxiously hard. And, and, and also, they kept it fresh. Like I said, good checkpointing. They almost all had multiple phases. And the phases weren't just... Okay, now this boss hits harder, or it can do... Now he has wings! Ooh. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> yeah y- usually it would have something to do with... It would be um, cut in the middle by some kind of platforming challenge. Like, the, f- the floor would fall out, or you'd have to find your way up to some other thing. And then the combat would just completely change. You were right. It, the phases were all different. They weren't just pure escalations. Like, mm-hmm. now there's twice as many particles on the screen. It's... Uh, phase-gated boss battles, but the phases were meaningfully mechanically different. And now yep. that I'm thinking about it, I feel like that uh, the chase sequences that were embedded in that, that bit of platforming, really made it feel like less of a video game thing and more like you're taking on this boss throughout the lever- levels. Like, yeah. they are chasing you, you are chasing them. You're, it's not just a here's a boss fight, and this is the boss fight room you're going to be in. Like, you are dragging each other through this world, which is more Yeah, you don't, see, you don't walk into in the doors locked behind you, and you got to just deal with it. It's like, oh, man, that door. <laughs> 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 I didn't see that How did I not see that? God, it's no, like it's happened in the last 12 <laughs> levels straight. <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, you guys are both definitely right, but I think it made it feel a lot more like cinematic and filmic, right? Like yep. this is the way that an encounter with the big bad would happen in a Pixar or Disney movie, more so than it would happen in a traditional video game, right? Oh, like, yeah. Uh, Good point. And that that is another thing to me, which sort of adds to that Pixar aesthetic that this whole thing seems to be um, very successfully aping. At the end of the day, you know, when you're finally done with all of these boss fights, um, you make your way to the actual will- willow, the willow tree of the Will of the Wisps uh, that you are trying to restore throughout the entirety of this game uh, after having retrieved all of the wisps. And you make a stunning realization that uh, Ori is going to be required to sacrifice himself to uh, resurrect the land and become the next spirit of Niwen. And again, Josh, you asked earlier, uh, how is this game like Hollow Knight or Dark Souls? And I would say to you, the cycle where you give yourself up to whatever it is, and then the cycle starts all over again, just like all of those other games we talked about. Yeah, but the difference is for Hollow Knight, that's the bad ending. This is the good ending. You're right. Like, like I said, yeah. it, it, it's the same story, but with a positive twist instead of a soul-crushing <laughs> nothing you did, no matter how hard that game was over the last 40, 60 hours, and you hated yourself the whole time, just to get to the end and find out none of it mattered. This Oops. time, it actually matters. <laughs> yeah, no, you got, you're really hitting on something here, because you're absolutely right that it's the difference between a nihilistic read on the cycle of death, de- or, you know, life, decay, and death, rebirth. and rebirth versus the hopeful one, which is, you know, yes, this cycle is ending, but there's a hope for a better future. Well, that rebirth word is the key difference between the two theme-wise. Like in Hollow Knight, there was some abyssal god that comes over and corrupts everything. And this one, it's just like, oh, there's fungus growing on the dead spirit tree right now. That's what the decay is. But it's part (laughs) of the cycle. Yeah, but at the end of the... It is weird how they sort of 
place you in opposition to the de- to the decay, but at the end of the day, you are the agent of rebirth, and that can really only happen with the decay. So I, I hear you that there's a bit of a muddled message there, but I think the interesting thing more so about this game is that there's a ton of games out there about breaking the cycle, right? And this game is more so saying Embrace the cycle it. is a natural part of our world. Yeah. And it, as long as you're hoping for a better future and working towards it, then the cycle doesn't have to be a bad thing. Embrace the cycle and be the agent of change, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead of and, and again, I think that in Hollow Knight, you're just per- perpetuating the cycle. You're just continuing the bullshit. Same thing with, well, depending on how you play Dark Souls. I, <laughs> I killed Gwyn, so I just became the next thing, right? I can't That's remember. Right. Yeah. You, you could get the Dark Lord ending, but you could also uh, fuel the bonfire and rekindle the, the flame. Um, this game is rekindling the flame if the flame wasn't sinister and shitty. Yeah. <laughs> and you get the good ending without uh, soul-crushing difficulty and playing for 100 hours. So there's that. Also, an, unrequited, <laughs> er, an unmitigated good. I will for call sure. that a plus. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, this is a good intro into the other ones. I enjoyed this game, but what if I could get the experience of hitting my hand with a hammer repeatedly? <laughs> Where should I turn? Dark Souls. Well, do I have some suggestions for you? <laughs> yeah, don't listen to Brian. He'll give you all sorts of... <laughs> uh, yes, don't listen to me. Well, with that, why don't we sum up our feelings on Ori and the Will of the Wisps with a three-word review. My three-word review is Pixar Perfect Metroidvania. Uh, The artistry and ability to pull at the heartstrings of the player are on full display with Ori and the Will of the Wisps, and they remind me strongly of watching a Pixar movie. As I said before, despite the fact you're getting a backstory told in minutes, they strike a true emotional chord with you and transports you into the protagonist's land through the magic of animation. These short story cutscenes in this game could give any Pixar film a run for their money. Uh, the Metroidvania mechanics, the upgrades, the world, and the combat are light years ahead of the f- studio's first outing. All in all, if Moon Studios continues on this trajectory, I will happily play whatever they put out in the future. And finally, it proves the point that a story doesn't need to be complicated if it's told well. For me, my three word was imitation is flattery. Um, and I know we mentioned this a whole bunch of times. Uh, during the podcast, and I certainly have more examples than we ever brought up, but this game to me was so much Hollow Knight, which again, I love Hollow Knight, so didn't care. But <laughs> the question is, so where does the line between homage and copying lie? And I'm not sure, but this game definitely rode the line pretty hard for me, but where this sets itself apart is usually carbon copy games just fail to ever um, capture what was special about the source material, and I don't think Ori had that problem at all. In fact, it took something great and expounded upon it. And now I've got two really great games that I love that are a lot alike, and I really hope that they both come out with tons of sequels because I'll play all of them. (laughs) All right, my three-word review is Beautiful Forest Scamper. Um, This is probably my favorite game art style in the last couple of years. The color choices, the palettes were fantastic. Um, Getting to see these different worlds was a joy just getting to 
see what the artist would come up with. Uh, so it's a very, very beautiful game. Uh, animation, as Brian alluded to, is top-notch in this game. Kind of best of the uh, class in this. I really felt like I was a forest critter. And I, you know, it's not like other games where you're able to take on these gigantic towering beasts coming on here. You've got to run away sometimes. You've got to run around, roam around through things. Oh, oh man, um, those escape sequences with the boss fights, those were easily the most memorable part of this game for me. That's my three-word review, Beautiful Forest Scamper. For us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. And I'm Clint Jones. Take care and keep working for a better world. I think the the influence that I wanted to bring up here that I think is more obvious in Ori and the Blind Forest but also still applies here is uh, Studio Ghibli. This is like super Princess Mononoke energy if anybody's seen that film. Um, Sort of the, you know, forest creatures, lots of, you know, spirits of the forest and um, obviously beautifully animated. Not my favorite Ghibli, but it's a good one. Yeah, it's old. It's fine. It's, you know... It's Fern Gully done by more talented artists. <laughs> I remember Fern Gully. <laughs> Hollow Knight crosses with Fern Gully. Done. <laughs>